Matters family, it's Drew here, and I am so excited to jump right into chapter 8 of Acts as we continue in our series of Acts. Um, a couple weeks back, we remember Ryan preaching on chapter 7, and in chapter 7, we ended with the death of Stephen, and that, that, that experience where then Saul, soon to be Paul, gave approval for the stoning and the execution of Stephen and just the impact that that had on the believers. And as we pick up the story and the teaching in chapter 8, we pick up right there. But before we go into this, um, I'm going to cover all of chapter 8 today. And clearly, in the time that we have and in this format, and honestly, every sermon that anyone who ever preaches preach, we all know we can't get everything we want and everything that is to be mined out of the Word of God into the time that we have. So here's an encouragement that I have for you, or just, you know, if you'll allow me the privilege to be pastoral for a moment, um, and just give you this. You know, as we, as we are walking through the rest of this summer and this dynamic that we have with smoke and with everything in our world, sometimes we find ourselves in this situation where we're doing this live stream. So I want to challenge you, our Living Waters family, to do something. If there's a Sunday morning where you know we are going to be streaming like this, here's what I ask. If you know we're going to be pre re you know, reading through a particular chapter of Acts, I want you to spend the time you would normally spend getting ready to come here and read the Word. Prepare your hearts for the Word because the Lord can speak to you beyond what Ryan or Kim or myself or whoever is preaching preaches in this. He can, he can lay things on your heart as you read the word. So if you're like my family, which right now I'm certain is still in their pajamas, wrapped up in blankets, on the couch, or what we call the satellite campus, um, there's plenty of time in the morning to read the word in preparation for it. So I just want to challenge you with that. So today, I'm going to go through the entire chapter of chapter 8 of Acts. And the way I'm going to approach this is in three parts and bring the congruent themes together for it. So... With all that disclaimer, right into chapter 8. On chapter 8, verse 1, we say this, on that, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Now we're going to stop there for a second. So like I said, as we picked up after the death of Stephen, we see that the church begins to experience great persecution. And there's only a few times in the book of Acts where when they're talking about persecution, does Luke the author add the word great to really signify that this was profound persecution that the church was experiencing. And, you know, one of the lessons that we, we always need to learn when we look at the scripture, and Ryan has said it, I've said it, I'm sure Kim has said it when, when we've all preached, the word of God only has one meaning. Each scripture, each passage of scripture, it means what it meant to the audience it was written to. And so when you approach scripture, we have to understand what the meaning or the context, the historical cultural context was, what was going on in the time and space of that moment so that we can understand what it is. But it may have one meaning, but it may have a million applications. And that's the beauty of the Word of God. And so today as we're working at, at just this first passage of Scripture, this first introduction into chapter 8, as it's transitioning from the death of Stephen and the beginning of the persecution of the church to the ministry of Philip the deacon, we can take a principle out of this. And what I want to go is to circle back. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says this. Jesus says this. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So one of the things that's happening here in the midst of persecution is that Jesus, before he ascended back to the Father, he gave this instruction to his disciples, to his apostles. He said that the word, the gospel is gonna spread first in Jerusalem, then Judea, and it's just this concentric circle out. But here's the reality that a lot of us experience in our walk with the Lord and in his calling with us. Sometimes we get comfortable in our circumstances and we don't rightly move out of where we are. And sometimes we need a little nudge. And sometimes when the Lord says that something's gonna happen, we might put it in the context of like, oh, we're going to experience this easy movement of God because he said, this is where I'm going. And of course that journey is going to be trouble-free and, and easy as we follow what God's heart is. And what we see here in this passage is that Jesus was telling them what was going to happen, that the Holy Spirit was gonna come on power come with power on them, and they were going to move out and spread the gospel. But one of the things that we see just in this narrative of scripture is that God uses persecution at times or redeems persecution at times to accomplish his will. And that's what we see here in just this early passage, because although the apostles stayed in Jerusalem with this persecution, which was incredibly brave of them, the other believers were scattered and they went out. And here's where we pick up the story of Philip the deacon. Now, you know, in, in casual reading of this, you might think this was Philip, one of the apostles, but the apostles all stayed in Jerusalem. And Philip, the deacon, was one of the seven that were chosen. When you look back on the story of Stephen, we see Stephen chosen, but the very next person was Philip, this deacon, who was raised up to help administer the ministry in Jerusalem. And now with the persecution coming, we follow his story as he is scattered first to Samaria and then onward to spread the gospel. And so let's pick up now with that in context that God uses and will use absolutely everything that happens in our life to accomplish in his sovereign will our plan. He doesn't do everything, but in his sovereignty, he uses everything. Important note. Now verse 5, Philip went down to the city, to a city in Samaria, and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Which just shows, again, that Philip was operating in the full power of the Holy Spirit as he moved into Samaria, spread, spreaded the gospel, and performed incredible signs and wonders with such authority that these demons were screaming as they left, and the lame were healed, and all of this city were drawn to not only the power of God moving, but the words that Philip was sharing as he was sharing the gospel to this nation and to the city. Now it goes on with this interesting story of Simon the sorcerer. Verse 9, Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention, and they exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon found himself believing and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Again, we're going to pause there and give you some context into Simon the sorcerer. Now, if you do some deep diving and studying, you know, the scripture doesn't really have a lot of information, but you can look at some of the early church fathers 
and some of the things that they might have said. You can look at, at historical accounts and things like Josephus in his uh, historical account of that time period. And there's a lot of mention and a lot of legend, honestly, of uh, that, that kind of converge on this name, Simon the Sorcerer, sometimes called Simon Magnus, and sometimes called a couple of different other things. But quite honestly, he was very powerful and he operated in basically the demonic power that he had acquired over the years and some even revered him as God. And as he is operating in this city, there's such a contrast between what Philip does when he brings the gospel and the power of the true God in contrast to Simon the sorcerer, who no doubt his power was operated for his gain and for his benefit. And honestly, when you see in scripture as all of the city was, and probably the surrounding region, were drawn to the teachings of Philip and what God was doing to heal and redeem and set free people, that was unique. And that was powerfully different than the power that Simon operated in. You see, Simon more than likely operated in a power that drew attention to him and drew power to him. And, you know, he often would, as historical accounts would, would state for those like Simon, they would charge for their services. So not only are they fleecing the poor to try to get this power to work for them, but it's not setting anyone free. It's not healing anyone. It's just simply lifting up Simon. And the contrast between Simon the sorcerer and Philip coming with the power of God in the gospel and the signs and wonders as the Holy Spirit is operating powerfully through him, draws great belief and great conversion to this area as many Gentiles are being brought into the family of faith, which is the fulfillment of what Jesus was saying in Acts 1.8. In fact, as we read chapter 8, one of the most profound things that we can see is chapter 8 is the beginning of the spread of the gospel to the world. Used using Philip, this deacon, this ordinary man, not even one of the apostles, to begin that journey and to begin that process where the gospel goes out to all nations. So now, picking back up the story, even Simon the sorcerer was amazed and the word says he believed and was baptized. So now we pick up the story again in verse 14 when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. They sent Peter and John to Samaria, verse 15. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. I want to pause there. And then we don't want to lose the nuances of some of these things. Um, something I say often when I'm, when I'm sharing with people, either in counseling or when I'm teaching or when I'm preaching, is that... One of the observations of God's character that I've seen throughout the years in my own life and the lives of many people is that God is the greatest multitasker in the cosmos. He always has intention for what he does, and he always has greater purposes beyond just the surface. And one of the things that as I was studying this passage was a, was a question that came to my mind, but also is a question that many of the commentators and the, the commentaries that I've read brought to mind was that why didn't Philip lay his hands on the Samaritan believers and allow them to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, allow them to receive the Holy Spirit. And clearly he was operating in the power of the Spirit. So could Philip not do that? Did he not have the power to do that? What is the significance here? And just from what I've read and from what I feel like the Lord is in the grand story and his, in his multitasking nature is doing here, is if we remember back to some of the comments and attitudes of the apostles, um, in the history of the Gospels, in the accounts of the Gospels, particularly Peter and John, 
Um, it's interesting to see God's intention in having them come to the Samaritans, them laying their hands on them, them being the ones to impart the Holy Spirit on them. Because if you remember, Peter was, was very much, in some regards, in his history, a nationalist. He, he did not like the Samaritans before Jesus encountered his heart. And in fact, John, along with his brother, if you read the story of Jesus going into the Samaritan village and preaching, when the Samaritans offended them with their, with their um, disbelief in Jesus, they wanted to call the fire of God down and burn them up. This is where Jesus gave James and John the nickname, the Sons of Thunder, that they wanted to call the fire of God down on the Samaritans and burn them rather than give them the gospel. And so when I read this account, I see God's intentionality of calling these two leaders, these apostles, and the demonstrative change of heart that this represents, where they then get to validate that the gospel and the presence of God is expanding into those that aren't of the Jewish faith. They're, they're the Gentiles, they're the Samaritans, the outsiders. And yet God is giving them the opportunity not only to validate the work and the faith that these people are demonstrating, but to be the ones to actually impart with laying on of hands in prayer the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we know is the sign and seal of salvation on these people. What an incredible moment in church history to see that these two men who once upon a time had so much animosity and so much hatred and disdain for these people are now being used by God to be the ones to put their basic, the seal of approval of God on this move of God to expand the church beyond the Jews and beyond Jerusalem. It's such a powerful moment. And so I, I didn't want to read that without bringing that up to say, God is such an intentional actor. He's such an intentional orchestrator of all the things that we see in the scripture. And that should give us great hope and great faith in his character to do the same things in our lives that when we find ourselves moving and operating in this world, he has intentionality for every step he takes us on. And so could Philip have done it? Yes, he could have. He operated in the power of the Holy Spirit, but God had something that he wanted not only for Peter and John to experience as they validated and obeyed the commission of Jesus in Acts 1.8, but also I believe that the Samaritans would see that these leaders of this movement who were once people that were exclusively nationalistic to the Jewish nation were now giving their seal of approval to this move out and beyond. It brings me back to the story of the Samaritan woman and Jesus at the well when Jesus promises her that there is a time coming and has now come where it won't be that they have to go to Jerusalem to worship. It won't be that the Samaritans are excluded, but they are brought into the family of faith. And the fact that this is where it goes first in the book of Acts is profoundly beautiful. We see that being fulfilled. But back to Simon the sorcerer. So here we go. We see this, and again, on verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. <laughs> and said, give me also this ability so that everyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Now you see this, this interesting situation here where he is asking for the privilege of being able to operate in this power. And again, we, we don't see in the scripture that his belief wasn't authentic. I mean, clearly he believed and was baptized, but he's also still got a wrong heart here. And he's thinking that the power of God can be purchased. And this may come from his mindset and his history of what he did to achieve the powers that he was operating in. Maybe that was how he got that. Maybe he submitted himself to another sorcerer, paid for a demonic you know, impartation to be able to operate like this. And 
clearly thought that was how the kingdom of God was working here. But he's quickly rebuked by Peter, saying, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So I'm gonna stop there again. We have this interaction. Peter is rightly discerning where Simon the sorcerer's heart is, and he does not give him this option or opportunity. And he rightly calls out the the wrongness of heart here. And Simon's response is, well, pray for me so that that doesn't happen. Now, there's not much else written in the the scriptural accounts of Simon. There's other stuff that you can find in historical readings of, of whether or not he actually does humble himself and submit, but the evidence seems to say he doesn't. In fact, it seems to say that he might oppose the apostles later on in further time. There's even one historical account says that he asked his disciples to bury him in a tomb and so that he could rise in three days uh, just to prove he was operating in the power of God. Spoiler, he's still there. In that historical account, he did not make it out of the tomb. Clearly not Jesus, not the Messiah. But what we have here is, is this moment in scripture where the meaning and the purpose of it was Peter rebuking this wrong belief that the, that the gift and the power of God can be purchased, earned, manipulated at all. This is a gift from God for sincere believers that receive him fully and are, and are imparted with the seal of salvation and with the power of the Spirit. Now, a principle that we can draw from that that I think that we really should because it, it comes with such great contrast to what we see in the next movement of this chapter is that there's an issue and it's a contemporary issue again this has one meaning but it has a principle that i'd like to bring to us right now and again i so appreciate the worship that we had this morning because i think it undergirds what i'm about to say there are many people who see the power of god and and experience the move of god and we get stirred up to pursue god not for who he is and for the glory of who he is, but for the experience of what he can do for us. And I think this interaction of Simon the sorcerer really points to that reality. Simon was looking to be powerful. He was looking for yet another thing to elevate himself. He was looking for more impartation. Essentially, he was looking and seeking God's hand rather than his face. He was seeking God's power rather than relationship and the lordship of Christ in his life. And that's a principle we all, have to, as sincere believers, wrestle with our own motivations. None of us are immune to this. I mean, in my own walk with the Lord, I've had to work through many moments in my life where I had to question myself to say, am I pursuing an experience with God or am I pursuing God? There's nothing wrong with experiences with God. In fact, they're essential. The way that God operates in our life, he's an experiential God and he's a process God. He's a God that that starts a process often throughout all creation with an experience, with an encounter. And so, yes, we love those encounters. Yes, we love the power of God. But those experiences promote us into further relationship with God, to seek his face, to seek his presence, to seek his voice, not just the encounter of power or not just the the power or the experience we can gain from what he has done. Simon, clearly his heart wasn't right, and so he didn't receive this power. And we now move on further further from there into the rest of this passage. Verse-
beneath Samaritan villages. And now we see Philip moving on. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit of the Lord told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now we have this incredible other moment in this, in this story in the passages of scripture where the angel of the Lord, because of the close relationship that Philip is cultivating with the Holy Spirit and obedience to the Lord, the Holy Spirit can tell him what to do and operate powerfully in his life to go do it. So he Here's the angel of the Lord say, go, go here. And he does, he goes, and he encounters this eunuch. Now, sidebar, we need to talk about what a eunuch is. And I'm really grateful that I get to preach this. And I know that Kim didn't want to have to. So <laughs> here we are. Uh, historically, and again, this comes back into this whole idea. And it's an important idea. And you'll know why more in just a moment that the scripture can only mean what it meant to the original audience, but it has multiple applications. In the scripture, the eunuch, and historically a eunuch is a person, mainly a man, always a man, who has, there's no better way to say this, has been castrated um, as a sign of their devotion to serve royal, often royalty. And so in this instance, it's a eunuch, an Ethiopian eunuch who's been castrated and he's in service to the queen of the Ethiopians. Now, there was a, not, a lot of reasons why a eunuch would do this or why this would be required of for, for men who were serving in royalty like this, and specifically if they were serving a queen. It's that when you're castrated, you have no sexual function or desire, really. I mean, there's, it's brought low. And that was part of the price that was paid to serve royalty. And here we have this eunuch. And he is on his way back to Ethiopia in service of the queen. He had been up in Jerusalem worshiping and we find him sitting in his chariot reading the scroll of Isaiah. And the spirit of the Lord told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So something that we need to also, I think it's important to understand or to have in context. This is not the first time that the scripture mentions eunuchs. If you go from Matthew 19, 12, it says that Jesus says this, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. Again, scripture needs to interpret scripture, and it can only mean what it meant to the original audience. And in this case, eunuchs that were born that way would often be understood um, for that time and culture, with their knowledge and their understanding and their interpretation of nat the natural, it would have been what we see now in our day and age where we know that there are birth defects that sometimes cause uh, ambiguous genitalia. This is an intersex condition where someone might be born without proper understanding of what their genitalia is or both or, or whatever it is or a number of, of genetic uh, disabilities, mutations that cause this sort of thing. And the interpretation of that back then without understanding of genetics or chromosomes or all that would have been God made this situation happen. But of course, this is just one more manifestation of broken creation after the fall. But this would have been interpreted that way as God allowed this or God made this. And what happens in that situation is that often they wouldn't be married or they wouldn't have sexual function. So they were a eunuch. 
made that way by God. Made that way by men would have been the situation more than likely of this Ethiopian eunuch where in service to royalty, they chose to go through castration and submission and basically limiting and cutting off their sexual expression for the future for the honor of serving in this royal court. And those who choose to live like eunuchs, like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven would have been those like what Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 through 9, which says this, I wish all of you were like I am, Paul being unmarried, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, one has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say this, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they can't control themselves, they should marry for it is better to marry than burn with passion. Now I'm not going to go into all of that, but what it does imply there is that in the kingdom of God, we can choose to forego marriage and that sexual expression for devotion to the kingdom. And as one who is married with kids, I can tell you, and is in full-time ministry, I wouldn't choose any differently for my life, but my wife and my kids do limit the things that I can do for the kingdom of God. Whereas someone who is single, unattached, and not responsible for children or marriage has the freedom to go and do things for the kingdom when we're submitted to the Lord, that those who are married and not going to say tied down, but in different circumstances, just don't have the freedom to do. That would have been the interpretation of that passage. Those who were born maybe with birth defect, those who were submitted to a process in a kingdom situation much like this Ethiopian eunuch, or those who choose to submit and surrender sexual expression, marriage, children, all of that for the sake of being fully available to the kingdom of God. And again, this passage can only mean what it meant to the original audience, to the original people. It can't be reinterpreted to mean anything else, although the principle of it can apply today. The reason I bring this up, and you'll all know if you know anything about my ministry and my story and my, my um, history and my testimony and those that I've associated with throughout time, this passage of scripture has often been hijacked to try to mean something that it doesn't. And it's important even to take this moment now to say, this does not mean that there were people in the, in the early church that were transgender or from the LGBTQ identity and that God then approves of that and gives special license to it in the kingdom. That's not what this means. However, I will say this because God is a good and a wonderful God, that many of the people that I've known in my life who have come from a transgender or a homosexual background and have surrendered their lives to Jesus and now find themselves in the consequences of those circumstances, whether it be in the transgender community, having gone through a surgical process and no longer have the genitals that God has given them, now feel hopeless or, or beyond the work of the kingdom because they've, they've done this consequentially to their own bodies. And yet in so many of the stories of people that I have known who have come out of that life, do you know what passage of scripture God has spoken to them by his spirit to encourage them that they do in fact, in submission to him, have place and purpose in the kingdom of God? This very passage. Because it doesn't matter what we've done and it doesn't matter what maybe the natural consequences of our lives have been, God still values and uses us as we surrender to him. I've known people not from the transgender background, but those who have been involved in the homosexual uh, identity and, and practice who unfortunately have contracted HIV and then feel really hopeless as they walk out of this, like, well, what is my life? 
what can my life mean? I can't move on and get married and, and have kids necessarily. Maybe, you know, that's a, that's a fear for them because of that. And yet the Lord has said, in spite of the physical consequences, there is great purpose in the kingdom for you. And so, again, this can't mean what it didn't mean to the original audience. So this is not an affirmation of that, of that um, choice and life and identity. But what it is saying is no matter where we come from, the Lord has special purposes for us. Let's pick up back in the story. I'll get off that soapbox for a moment. When we go into verse 30 of chapter 8, it says, Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? How can I, said the eunuch, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come in, come up and sit with him. The passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared in Astos, maybe that's how it's pronounced, <laughs> and traveled about preaching in the gospel all in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Side note, we'll find Philip again later in chapter, I believe, 22 of Acts in Caesarea with his four daughters, where Paul, now Paul, not Saul, goes and stays with him, the very man that caused Philip to flee Jerusalem, the very man that caused Philip to leave the comfort of the assembly and go and to witness to Samaria and now to this Ethiopian eunuch who is in the royal court and takes the gospel to the royal court of Ethiopia, which you can do a whole long study of the impact of Christianity and what that may have meant to the nation of Ethiopia and to their people. Now Paul is staying with Philip the evangelist as he's often referred to in the historical records. It's a wonderful loop of how God brings things back together. The man who persecuted is now the man who is a co-laborer in Christ and staying with him. But one of the most beautiful things that I see in this passage of scripture is the contrast in response from Simon the sorcerer to the eunuch. Simon the sorcerer was seeking something to uh, to to promote him, to give him more power, to give him more influence. His heart was wrong. He was seeking the hand of God, not the face of God. And yet we see this contrast with the Ethiopian eunuch where he is sitting, having gone to worship the Lord in Jerusalem, he is sitting with the word of God trying to understand. And the Lord, of course, encounters him through the ministry of Philip on the road. And as the scriptures are open to him and he is, as he hears the truth, of who Jesus was and the hope he has for him, of course his response is to submit to that truth, to joyfully commit his life to Jesus, to continue to pursue that depth of relationship and understanding of the presence of God in his life. And I wanna know someday when I get up in glory, I wanna find that eunuch and I wanna ask him what it was like to then go back 
into that nation with the hope that was just given him, with the revelation of Jesus into the royal court. I want to know someday what God did to use a right positioned heart to receive the gospel and to live from that place of receiving the gospel. Some little nuggets in here that I'm not going to get into that, you know, would be fun as a study someday is Philip was literally beamed up and taken somewhere else in the middle of this conversation with the eunuch. And what an experience that must have been for the eunuch to know that God intentionally met him on the road as he was earnestly seeking him. It brings back to mind what was promised to us in scripture that those who seek him will find him, that God encounters those with sincere hearts who are earnestly seeking his presence and his, his will in their life. God, God does stuff to get people in the right position and uh, to, to tell us the truth that we need to hear, to tell us the hope that we need to hear. It doesn't matter the circumstances, God is always at work in that. And so we have this contrast between again, Simon the sorcerer and the eunuch. And what a contrast it is. So that's the end of chapter eight, but I wanna leave you with this as we begin to just move out of this into what I hope you will do and take some personal time to reflect, to read this word over again, to read the chapter over again, and to ask yourself this question. Not one of us, by the way, in, in, in the family of faith is immune to having to ask ourselves this question from time to time. Are we seeking the Lord for what he will do for us, or are we seeking him for who he is? That's the principle. That's the, the application that I think comes out of this as we rightly understand the historical context and the cultural context and what this scripture meant and what it was saying to the original audience, here's the principle we can mine out of it, the overarching principle. Are you seeking God for what he does for you or for him? Let me leave you that challenge today. If you find in your interaction with this, and I do challenge you to go interact with the Lord on this, if you find that maybe your heart has been a little bit weighed toward the side of seeking after the experience or the hand of God or the, the um, blessing of God rather than just God himself, let me just say that's really common to all of us in, in humanity. And it's not wrong to seek experiences with God. It's not wrong to pursue the power of God. In fact, there are, so, there are full streams of Christianity in the church today that could do with a little bit more pursuing the power of God. But in our own hearts and lives, can we allow the Lord to speak to us and redirect our hearts if we, have, if we have been seeking the mountaintop rather than experiencing him either on the mountaintop or the valley, if we've been looking for just the emotional response and haven't given the time and the effort to actually know with the depth of who we are, who God is and what his word says, let this stand as a challenge. Because Simon the sorcerer, his, his ministry, lack thereof, his, his movement forward in his encounter with God, it's, it's much like what Jesus talks about in uh, the parable of the, the sower and the seeds, that some seeds fall among the thorns and get choked out by the cares of this world. I would say that maybe Simon did have a genuine encounter with the Lord, that he genuinely believed, but that the choking out of the gospel happened in his life because the pursuit of power and self-gain were more powerful for him than the word, than the truth of, of Jesus. It just didn't stand up. And yet the Ethiopian quite literally is a man who those seeds fell on fertile soil and it reaped a great harvest. May we all be fertile soil for the Lord. And may we allow him to speak to our hearts when there are things that are common to humanity that try to choke out the life 
of, of the Spirit, the life of the Lord in our lives. Maybe rightly allow the Lord to correct us and to once again put us on a path where we are seeking his face, not just his hand. I love you all. I'm so grateful for the opportunity, for the ability that we have to still have the word of God taught, to still have worship, even if it's in our own living rooms, or again, my, my family calls this the satellite campus. Um, and I just want to take the moment here in the context of what we're wrestling through and the, the, the reality that we're streaming and not in person, just to thank the hard work of every single person on this team, Andy and Nisha and the production team and everyone that has fought hard in this last year to make sure that we can do this and that we still have the opportunity to worship together and to hear the word together, even if we're not together. So I am appreciative of that this morning and I wanna encourage you once again, pursue God for who he is, for his presence in your life, for his abiding word in your heart, not just for what he does for us. And I think in a time and season where circumstances, no other word to say it, suck, we need that. We need the presence of God. We need the person of God and Jesus in our hearts and lives to be the unchanging thing when the circumstances aren't ideal. And once again, as we started this whole chapter, God does use difficult circumstances to advance us. And I think that as we find ourselves now, if we will submit to him the character and the power and the move of God that he will create through this terrible season will be an unstoppable force if we'll allow it to be. I love you all. God bless you and have a great Sunday.